So during Advent, the church looks forward to two things, right? We look forward to Christmas Day, and we look forward to that next Christmas Day when Christ returns and comes again in all his glory. And uh, the, so uh, Advent is a season in our, in our church here where we remember that we are awaiting people. We wait. That's part of what it means to be a Christian is we, we wait and we anticipate Christ coming again. And we've been actually looking at that recently. Like the, the lectionary readings have been centered around this idea of waiting. And what do we do while we wait? How do we be faithful to God in the midst of this? And now that we've reached Advent, um, this ramps up a notch. But it also, um, we, we kind of turn a corner in the fact that it's not just the church that is in this season. It's our world that's in this season. I don't know if you've noticed that Christmas lights are up now. Um, you know, Black Friday's over, and now it's time for Christmas stuff to be up in all the stores and Christmas sales. And so we're confronted during this time, we're actually confronted um, with a lot of things that are wrong with us. Christmas lists are made, and we spend time thinking about all the things that we wish we had, but we don't. Tasty treats tempt us. And we often fall into temptation and are reminded of the fact that we don't have the bodies or the physique, perhaps, that we want. Um, we face uh, relationships, uh, family or, or children, um, relationships with our families or children that are often uh, or sometimes strained or broken, challenging, and we wish things could be different. And of course, um, the elephant in the room for this year is COVID. We have to—we face all of these things in this season of Advent and Christmas with this virus in our world. And so this morning, what I want to do is focus in on the passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 3 to 9, because Paul is writing this letter to a church that is full of problems— they had a lot that was wrong with them. They had, um, they, they struggled with sin issues. They were divided. They had differences of belief. They had so many things that were wrong with them. And how does Paul, who is writing this letter to them, how does he address this church? He starts with grace. In the introduction to this letter, Paul essentially says to this Corinthian church, you know, before we start talking about the problems, your, your sin issues, the division, the belief, you know, differences that you have, let's, talk, let's get one thing straight. Let's talk about grace. Because if you don't build your whole foundation on grace received, you'll never be able to face these problems. You'll never be able to overcome these problems. So Paul puts it, I always thank my God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. And so church, as we move into a season of, of Advent and Christmas, it's the same for us. If we don't build our entire lives on the grace given to us in Jesus, we'll never be able to face things, problems, things that happen not just at Christmas time, but throughout our whole lives and overcome them. So first of all, what, what does Paul mean when he says grace? Well, the Bible talks about grace as the undeserving and unobligated love of God to people. Okay, that's important. So it's undeserved, meaning we don't deserve it. We don't, we don't earn God's grace in any way. And it's unobligated love, which means that 
it's not something that, that God has to give us. He's not obligated to show us love. Grace means the undeserved and unobligated love of God to people. But grace isn't something that we can simply know about, because I think a lot of us in the church, if you were raised in the church, you know, yeah, I'm saved by grace through faith. We know it in our heads. But for grace to actually change the way that we act, the way that we face our problems, the way that we see ourselves, it has to move past our head and move into our hearts. And so this morning what I want to do is look at three, I think, things that are important to, to make, to help grace move from something that we know about in our heads to something that animates our lives and the way that we act in all that we do. So we need to see the need for grace, the power of grace, and the cost of grace. The need for grace, the power of grace, and the cost of grace. So first, let's talk about our need for grace. Many of us are familiar with Disney's hit movie, Frozen. Some of you may be cringing just at the very mention of that, that word. Um, others of you may be overjoyed that finally there's a sermon illustration that strikes you, that hits you on your level. Wherever you are, um, we, most of us probably know this movie. We know this storyline. It tells us of uh, a girl named Elsa, right, who has a big problem. She has a special power that everything that she touches turns to ice, right? But down below her problem is actually something deeper that she struggles with. She struggles with the question, how can I be loved? How do I know that I'm loved? How do I know that I'm accepted with this problem in my life? It, it points beyond the, 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 you know, how do I live with this power to how do I know that, that I'm loved by people with this power? See, I think we all ask that question. You know, like Elsa, we know that, that there is something that's broken inside of us. And the Bible calls this sin. We all find ourselves wondering, in the midst of our sin and our brokenness, am I worthy of love? Am I loved? How do I know I'm loved? How do I know I can be accepted? So Elsa, this is Elsa's struggle through this movie. And what does she do? You know, ever since she was a young child, we learn about this in the movie, her parents have taught her how to live with this, how to how to know that she can be loved and accepted. And she sings about it in her, um, her, her big song. How does she do it? She says, I have to be the good girl that I have to be. I have to conceal and don't feel. Don't let them see. Right? It, I put the lyrics to the song, uh, Let It Go, on, on the screen just so we can see what's going on in Elsa. This is this is Elsa's song that's telling us about what's going on in her heart as she's trying to figure out who she is and how she can be loved. So, be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. So how did she answer this question? How do I know that I can be loved? She put on a face. Right? She, she looked like a good person to other people. How often are we tempted to follow in these footsteps? To just shove all of our problems down inside of us, 
to not let them come up, to not let them bother us, to push them under the rug, and to just pretend like things are okay. You know, we often think to ourselves, if I just, if I can just work hard enough at putting on a good face and getting past my problems, then I'll be okay. If I can just get people to like me, then I know, then I, then I'll, then I can, you know, have the love and the acceptance from people. I'll be okay. And when it's hard for Elsa, right, she just has to think to herself, you know, I just have to try harder. I just have to learn how to cope with this and, and be, uh, learn how to please my parents, learn how to, how the people of the nation can see me as a, as a good queen. In other words, Elsa is trying to overcome her sense of brokenness without grace. There's no grace in her life right now. There's no grace at work in her heart. She's trying to earn her acceptance by her works. And it doesn't work for her, right? And she finally, you know, her power comes out. What she tries to keep hidden for so long is revealed to everyone at that banquet. And what does she do? She runs away because she is filled with this guilt and this shame at what has been kept a secret for so long. Then she sings. Right? She sings, let it go. Let it go. It's time to see what I can do. It's time to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. And so what Elsa's doing is she's, well, she, she's breaking free from the old way of, of thinking. That she has to work hard at trying to be a good person and trying on a new way. She's trying for the first time to be true to herself, to be honest about the way that she is. She's looking inside, of herself, inside herself and saying, I'm not going to let anyone tell me what's right and wrong. I won't let anyone tell me how to use this power or if this power is good or if this power is bad. I'm going to live as I see fit. I'm going to live how I want. Now for, for a moment, just think of how bold that is for Elsa to say that. Right? To step out and, and to do that. But then you think about it. Well, who's then affirming her? Who is saying whether or not she is worthy of love and acceptance? If that is the question that's been going through her this whole time, and what she has done when she sings this song and lets it all go and, and says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, I'm going to live how I want, is she is moving herself to the center. She is facing her problem on her own. And she has to be the one to answer the question, am I loved? Both of these ways of facing the problem that Elsa's trying to wrestle with, both need grace. There's no grace. Both of them rely on her performance. See, without grace, we will either try to earn our love and acceptance by being seen as a good person, or we will try to earn love and acceptance by looking inside of ourselves and, and convincing ourselves that we are a good person. Paul's answer to the Corinthians is different. As they face their problems, as they face their brokenness, he urges them to live out of the grace they've received, a grace that is not earned, right? Grace is not deserved and it's not obligated. 
It's a gift. We need grace. There's no other way to face the problems in our lives and overcome them without grace. And so what then is the power of grace? Well, we see in this letter that Paul points out a few things about the power of grace. Um, First is that grace makes us truly rich. Truly rich. Paul says to the Corinthians that they have been enriched by grace. And this is a loaded word to this group of people because these, these specific people that Paul's writing to live in a, in a city called Corinth. And Corinth was a wealthy city. Corinth was something like Toronto or New York City. It was where all the big shots live, all the wealthy people. And so when Paul is using this word enriched, he is honing in on something very, very loaded to this group of people. And he uses a Greek word that actually means... Uh, paraphrased in our English language, you've hit the jackpot. You've hit the jackpot. What happens when someone hits the jackpot? They realize that they have found a richness that they've been looking for their whole lives. And they've got it. And so what Paul is saying is that grace received enriches their lives in a way that the riches that they've been chasing after can't do. What does this mean for us? Well, think about this. If, if God, the God of this universe, loves you unconditionally, pours his favor upon you lavishly, what else matters? What else, what else really matters? The power of grace is that receiving Christ and all his benefits, right? Because in Christ we receive a hope that, that there, we we will be united with him in his life, death, and resurrection, that there's eternal life. The worst case scenario for a Christian is eternal life with Jesus forever. We realize that this grace is an invaluable, infinitely valuable gift. I've heard stories from Canadians who have visited um, slums in Africa and been surprised that they find people who are truly joyful in these places of seeming scarcity. And it doesn't fit with our Western worldview. Why? Because we have things out of order. We've missed the richness of grace. An undeserved, unobligated gift that we receive that changes our lives. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Grace enriches your life. The second thing that it does is it unleashes our best attributes and sanctifies our worst. Notice here that Paul also points out that they've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. In Greek culture, this speech and knowledge is an infinitely valuable character trait, right? Later on, a few verses later, Paul will actually point out that Um, The Jews, he's talking about Jesus, he says, the Jews demanded a sign. The Greeks look for wisdom, right? He's, He's pointing out what each culture values. Paul knows this, and so he's using this to say to the Corinthian church that you think that you have wisdom, or you're searching for wisdom, but when you are enriched with grace, that's when wisdom is really set free. That's when you can really be wise. Why does this happen? Well, when our lives are built on grace, when we know that we are 
accepted and loved, not because we work hard at it, but because Christ gives it to us as a gift, then it detaches our sense of love and acceptance from our performance. It separates these two things, which both humbles us and empowers us. A great example of this is the prophet Isaiah. So we read this morning from Isaiah 64, and the only reason why we have 64 chapters in Isaiah is because of an experience he had earlier in his life where he met God, and it changed his life. You see, uh, Isaiah had a vision of the temple and of the holiness of God, and when he comes in view of God in all the fullness of his glory, he sees himself for who he really is, and he says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I am a person of unclean lips. And what commentators, Bible commentators will say is that this is so striking because this is his best attribute. A prophet's best attribute is their, their voice, their lips, what they can say to people. And that's the very thing that Isaiah points out is his worst. Then, in this vision, God touches his lips and purifies them. He, forgi- he extends grace to Isaiah and it changes him. And Isaiah is empowered and, and goes from this vision and preaches to the people of Israel, calls them to repentance in faithfulness to God. Why? Because his performance has been detached from his character. He serves God, not because it gets him God, but because it pleases God. And this is what happens when our lives are lived out of grace. It unleashes our best attributes. It sets us free from being enslaved to our own performance. And thirdly, the, the power of grace shows us that we don't lack anything. Now I'm running out of time, but I'll do this. I'll, sh- I'll share this quickly. Paul says to the Corinthians, they don't lack any spiritual gift as they wait. They don't lack anything to overcome their problems. Often as a church, we like to, we tend to look to what we lack. Oh, I can't do this because I, I don't know enough. Oh, I can't do this because I'm not, I'm not good enough. That's not the message that Paul gives this, this Corinthian church. As they're waiting, as they're waiting for Christ to come again, he says, you don't lack anything. Everything that you need to live a life in faithfulness to God, to do exactly what he's calling you to do, has been given to you, and has been given to you by grace. Trust it. First Hamilton, we need to hear this. We need to trust that we have been given everything that we need for what God has called us to do. But now— How do we know? How can we know that we can trust this grace and that it won't be pulled out from under us like a rug is pulled out from under a puppy? You know, we we can be confident in God's grace because we can look at the cost of God's grace. Imagine, I imagine most of us before have walked through our house with muddy boots. Has anyone ever done that before? (laughs) Ezra's nodding. (laughs) He's done that before. I've probably done it about 50 times before. 
And I know also that look, when you look behind you, yourself and you realize, oh no, look what I've done. I've made such a mess. Then it gets even worse. Because then, as you look behind yourself, you see the mess you've made, you look up and you see your dad standing there looking at the mess you've made. And then it, and then it gets real. What if, what if your dad said something to you like this? Hayden, go outside and play. I'll clean it up. Now that never happened to me. But that would have been grace. Right? Undeserved because I made the mess. Unobligated because I should have cleaned up my mess. And so if my dad were to say, I'll clean it up and got the, got the sponge out and got the carpet cleaner out and started scrubbing, he would have been extending me grace. Now, would it have changed me? Probably not. <laughs> I, I probably would have walked in the house with dirty boots next, the next week. Because it really didn't cost a lot for my dad to do that. Five minutes, yeah, it was nice. It was a good gesture. It was nice, but it didn't rock me. It didn't keep me up at night. But now imagine you get your driver's license. And for the first time, you're out on your own, on the town, a night out. Your parents have given you the keys. You parallel park like a champ. And then on your way out, you forget that there's a car behind you, and you back up right into it. And you hear that crunch. And you think to yourself, oh no. I only have $250 in my savings account. What am I going to do? And you call your parents, and you cry as you're telling them what happened, and that you're sorry. And then the tow truck comes and takes the car away. And your, dad's, your mom or your dad says, I'm going to meet you at the body shop. And you go there, and then you realize when you get there that the bill has already been paid in full. That would probably rock you a little bit more, wouldn't it? That would probably change how you saw your parents. Because their love for you, the grace that they extended to you, has proven their love. How far they went to extend grace has proven that they really love you, that, you, that you're loved by them. Now look to the cross. To forgive us and extend grace to us, Christ had to lay down his life. On the cross, Jesus was standing in your place, and he had to go there because we are so broken and so hopeless in ourselves that nothing else could satisfy God than for a righteous person to die. But get this, he was willing to. I said this last week. I'll say it again. Uh, the Sally Lloyd-Jones storybook Bible says it wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross. It was his love. He didn't have to. It was undeserved, unobligated grace. The cross proves to us that God can be trusted with our lives. Congregation, this is the starting point for us to deal with our problems, to overcome them. is from an identity that's built on grace, and grace alone there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can face anything with this assurance. We can share anything with God 
We can, we can, we can draw near to him knowing that we can never lose his love for us. He will always be there. Receive him today. Build your life on this grace. If we try to work through our problems without the power of grace, we will only go, go as far as our work or our performance can take us. But lean on the grace received in Christ. We will find that we serve a God that fulfills and satisfies the deepest desires of our hearts. When we get him and forgives us when we fail. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, that you've extended grace to us that um, allows us to face any problem that we have, knowing that nothing can rip us out of your hand. Father, um, as we draw near to your table, help us to uh, see this for what it is, that it is the gift of grace to us. That, that this is part of the assurance that speaks to our hearts, that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, that, it's, that it um, shows us even more how much you love us. Father, help us by your Spirit to take hold of this grace and let it, let it change how we live uh, every single day, how we face every problem and how we, we deal with every person that we meet including ourselves. In Jesus we pray. Amen.